Welcome to another exciting episode of the Alternative Investment Podcast. Listen in as your hosts, Jimmy Atkinson and Andy Hagens, discuss tax-advantaged investment strategies to help you grow your wealth. From commodities to real estate, private equity, agribusiness, and more, we cover it all here on the Alternative Investment Podcast. Welcome to the Alternative Investment Podcast. I'm Jimmy Atkinson. And I'm Andy Hagens. Andy, today's episode is going to focus on real estate investing for family offices and other ultra high net worth investors. And joining us today to discuss that topic is DJ Van Curen. DJ is a top 10 family office investor and co-managing member of Evergreen Property Partners, a family office real estate investing platform. And he comes to us today from Denver, Colorado. DJ, how you doing? And welcome to the show. Good. I'm doing good, Jimmy. Thanks so much for uh, you and Andy having me. Absolutely, DJ. It was great um, catching up with you in Dana Point earlier this month at the IMN conference that both of us were in attendance for. And, uh, you know, just a, a, a fun note for our listeners and viewers that, that DJ was one of my very first guests ever on my Opportunity Zones podcast way back in 2018. So it's great to have you now on the Alternative Investment Podcast today, DJ. Hey, to start us off today, I wanted to, you know, big, big macro question here. How much are family offices and other ultra high net worths investing in real estate? Can you characterize that for us? And, and how is real estate typically incorporated into a family's overall investment portfolio? Yeah, sure. Um, so the average uh, uh, allocation to, from a portfolio from a family office is 24.5%. And that's actually been increasing a little bit over the last number of years. And um, so we're able to, we're in our fourth year, the largest family office real estate investing study uh, in the world, actually. And, and that's something that we definitely tr uh, track. And it's really become a, a large part of a portfolio for families. And outside of the area where their wealth was created, whatever business that they were in, uh, real estate is the second largest area of wealth creation after that. Wow. So, so 24.5%. And, you know, that's, that's pretty darn close. Uh, I just had Med Faber on the show uh, last week, and we talked about, you know, used to have the 60 40. Uh, and now it's, it's more like the, the 50 30 20. And, and he wrote a book about David Swenson and the, the Yale portfolio and, you know, that idea of that increased allocation to illiquid alternatives. Uh, you know, you mentioned that that 24.5% is going up. Do you think that's, that's going to continue to increase over time? Is, is, is some of that right now be like short-term driven in the search for yield or is that a larger macro trend? You know, it's going it, to, when the market does well, right? There's a lot of allocations in that area. And, and there's a lot of demographic uh, components of what's happening in the market right now um, that will continue to have capital that is, is flowing into that space. Um, you know, right now with the rising of interest rates and um, cost of construction, you know, there's a lot of pause on the institutional side, um, waiting for the repricing of a lot of assets um, however, with families, they're continuing to invest. They're, you know, being careful a little bit, but they still uh, long term. Um, 
they're continuing to allocate toward that. And um, uh, the time periods of which they've been investing has come down a little bit. So you still have a lot of families that, because of the patient capital, can continue to invest and stay in the market. Um, but they also know that, okay, things have been going well for an awful long time. So let's be aware of that. But the hard asset component, especially in rising interest rates, are extremely favorable. And so real estate's at the top of the list. Yeah, I mean, what goes up must come down, right? The, the law of gravity. On the other hand, I think a lot of investors with this market cycle, you know, we see just everything inflates, right? And, and once inflation goes higher, I think some of that, the interest in real assets is, even if cap rates compress down to, to virtually zero, you know, we can still have some capital appreciation as opposed to you know, being in the bond market where we're gonna lose our principal. You know, the, the, the interest is payments are not gonna keep up with inflation, but we're also gonna lose some of our principal. So you know, when a family office or an ultra high net worth investor is looking at portfolio construction and, and they're looking at including alts or their wealth managers is looking at including alts, how does that fit in? So, I mean, is real estate, is it, is it meant to increase returns? Is it meant to lower risk or have a lower correlation to the traditional asset classes? You know, wh where does it fit in, I guess, strategically or conceptually? Um, well, let me go back and, and sort of, I want to address something that you just said, uh, you know, whether it's cap rate. I mean, we're, we're expecting some cap rate expansion to actually happen. Um, and you're going to see some prices coming down um, just as the cap rates go up and we have possible negative leverage around the corner. Um, but the one thing that you have to understand about real estate, especially when you have patient capital, is as long as you're cash flowing and um, it doesn't matter if the value goes to zero because you can hold on to that asset and you can make those debt payments and you can have extra monies available if you've got to make you know, certain um, expenses that you've got to uh, attend to. But it's all about how much debt you have on the property, which was a big issue that happened at the last recession where there's a lot of people that were over leveraged, right? And um, as long as, and more people are a little bit more conservative than they were before the last recession. Um, but as long as you've got that gap and you really need to make sure that you stress test. So for example, in multifamily, um, historically, uh, there's uh, uh, vacancy has never gone below 11, 11%. And um, you know that's on a national basis. And so if you go through and say, all right, can this property, if it's multifamily, for example, absorb only an 85% occupancy rate and you're still cash flowing, well, it doesn't matter what happens to the market because you can hold on. And that's one thing with patient capital, family office capital, a lot of the capital that RAs have where they can just hold on to it. But it does, um, you know, real estate, back to uh, your, your last question, um, it is um, an important part of the for portfolio. One, because of it, it is a hard asset, but it also helps in... Um, the type of uh, asset class that it is in relation to your other investments that you have, whether it's stocks, bonds, et cetera. DJ, you keep mentioning the, the phrase patient capital, and, and I love that phrase. I think some of our listeners and viewers may not be totally familiar with that. Could you just kind of walk us through what that means to you and how patient capital, you know, really what's the difference between that and, and an everyday retail investor? 
Well, it, it really, uh, let's first off go on, there's a number of different types of investors, right? You do have the retail investor. Those are going to be your, um, uh, you know, your average person that might have a financial planner, et cetera, right? When you move up to the next level based upon your wealth, you usually get into a registered investment advisor, right? And, and that's because now you're paying fees based upon performance and your assets instead of commission-based. And then you have, um, you know, the family office area and institutions. So anytime you have institutional capital, which are investing on behalf of foundations, endowments, you know, if they have, uh, if they invest into a fund, then there's usually a time frame on that fund. It could be seven years. It could be 10 years, right? Um, and where they have to sell. So imagine that based upon your legal documents back in, you know, 08, uh, 09, you had to sell. Well, you just eroded all of your gains, right? Whereas that family office, that high, very high net worth family, et cetera, they don't have to sell. They, they, they have no requirements that say, oh, I've got to get out now. And because of that, they were able to ride through that downturn and just hold tight and wait until things come out on the other end, which inevitably it will. And so, you know, that's that's really important for um, to be able to have that. And, you know, the retail investors can do that as well, because at the end of the day, you know, when you look at institutional capital, that they're investing on behalf of others' monies, right? Which could be from um, an endowment, insurance company, et cetera. Um, there's no personal relationship, right? They're, they have a box that they invest into. This is what our parameters are. And this is where we're investing. Whereas families, just like retail investors, um, it's their own money. There's emotion involved. They're making their own decisions. And so that's the, you know, that's the biggest thing. And I'm, I was an advisor in the 90s. Uh, I've worked with RIAs. I built out a national distribution channel throughout the broker-dealer area, worked with institutions, you know, Carlisle, Goldman Sachs, and, and then for the last seven years, families. So, um, you know, I've got a very good understanding of all the different uh, channels. And it's a lot of people think families are more institutional and actually they're more retail-like. Oh, that's interesting. And actually, I, I think it be a good juncture to just go over a couple definitions. I, I know a lot of our audience are already familiar with these terms, but, but honestly, I see them defined differently by different organizations or different people. So typically at AltsDB or the Alternative Investment Podcast, our normal audience is very high net worth investors, you know, accredited investors who are self-directed, as well as wealth managers, um, RIAs, few family offices, uh, you know, in that more professional side, but I've heard very high net worth defined as 5 million and up and ultra high net worth defined as 30 million net worth and up. And uh, honestly, I'm, I'm thinking those figures are out of date, um, especially, I mean, shoot, even over the past 12 months, um, they seem out of date. And I, you know, I also understand um, that just the economics of a family office that it's really only appropriate, uh, you know, once an investor reaches a certain threshold of net worth for the economics to really work for them to have their own family office or even a shared family office. So could I guess, could you walk us through your, your current thinking, even just definitionally, what do you consider ultra high net worth? And when is it appropriate economically or feasible economically for an investor to look into a family office? 
Yeah, so my definition of uh, family office, first off, is worth 250 million or more. So, and, and you're usually not gonna have your own CIO, chief investment officer, a lot of times until you hit the 750 million mark to a billion to really where it really starts making sense. Um, you know, a lot of people will have what's called virtual family offices, which is, um, could be done by a third party where they're there to oversee. There's no brick and mortars. It's just an individual that's helping the numerous people. And then, um, you know, once you get to 250 uh, mark, you can really start looking at what the family office uh, setup would look like from a legal perspective, for sure. So that would put the ultra high net worth in the probably about the $100 million range from my perspective. Um, and but there's a lot of people that have a lot of money between, you know, 25 to 100 million dollars. In fact, a, a couple of years back, somebody told me that there was just in the uh, Houston area, I think it was about a, uh, 1500 people that were worth 100 million uh, or more, which I thought was very considerable. Uh, the number of family offices in the U.S. is about 7000. And uh, when you look at a global basis, it's about 15000. And so, you know, can people start, you know, the definition or, or the use of a family office? There's two sides of it. There's what I call the hard side and the soft side. The hard side is, is the investment side, right? Where you're investing, what time of alternative assets you're investing into, real estate, stocks, bonds, private equity, et cetera. And then the soft side is really dealing um, with uh, the issues of, of tax planning, or how do you how do you put in place for the next generation of how you're going to transfer those generation governance, making sure that they have a full plan of how everything's going to operate an investment committee. Um, sometimes there's a psychiatrist involved because of the families, um, which is funny, but it's true actually uh, more than you think. And you know, the more money that people have, the more challenges that they have. You know, um, money is great, and you cannot do an awful lot with it. Both you know, for your family and enjoy yourself, but also on the giving side. Um, but there is a lot more that you have to deal with definitely as you get bigger. Um, there's still a need for planning, even under that 250 mark, for sure. It just varies on where you are in that process, right? If you want to pass along monies to the future generations, then you definitely need to um, be taking into consideration proper planning. Uh, in order to maximize what you can transfer to the next gens. Absolutely. So I guess that being said, uh, and I appreciate that, that your definition and sort of framing what a family office is, uh, what, what, do you, what does Evergreen Property Partners offer to family offices or how, how do you and your company fit into this overall picture? Yeah, so about seven years ago, I fell into the family office space, and about 95% of the people fall into the space, um, and that's because there's a big uh, exit from the sale of a business, let's say, and they're like, what am I going to do now? I've, I, you know, I, it's just like Sam Walton. I was driving this truck around, and, and now I've got all this money, right? Well, I trust my uh, accountant, my advisor. I trust my neighbor who's ran a business. It, and so those people come into the business and, and they don't necessarily understand uh, all the different investments, right? And so I fell into the space. And, and when I started uh, three months in, 
I asked somebody who was very seasoned in the business. I went to my first event. And I said, so, you know, I wanted to learn from her. I only knew two families at the time. And I said, so tell me, um, you know, what are you doing? She goes, ah, oh, we just had a conference, 60 families in Israel. I said, really, what'd you talk about? And she looked at me and she goes, oh, you know, hedge funds 101. Think of myself, hedge funds 101. These are people that are obviously smart, talented, wealthy. And you're telling me hedge funds 101? Well, the reality is, is that, you know, you spent your whole career in chemicals, in tires, in technology. And now all of a sudden you've got this money and you don't know hedge funds. You don't know real estate uh, to the degree. You don't understand private equity, venture capital. In fact, there's people that will spend their whole life in venture capital and not just venture capital, but healthcare venture capital. And then, you know, types of, of healthcare, certain sizes and their whole career. So there's no way that the CIOs um, that come in to help those families or um, um, or the, the families themselves understand all that. So my first family that I worked for was is a billionaire that's out of uh, Denver, created his wealth in real estate. Um, but he also, we were putting 100 million in oil and gas. We had three people actively trading equities. We had seven different um, solar parks. There's a foundation, right? So there's a lot of different components involved in that. Uh, and then I got um, headhunted by the Haining family, Giorgio Perfume, Giorgio Beverly Hills, came up with a, a, an office boutique brand strategy. So we sold off some assets. We bought some new assets, um, rolled out the strategy, and then we brought in an asset manager to stabilize. Wasn't much more to do. Uh, and then I did some work with a, a family that owned one of the professional baseball teams. And over the years, I had been asked from various families about the real estate. In fact, I got one today from a very, very large family said, DJ, what do you think? Well, in five minutes, I can look at it and I can give them an idea to say, what's going on with that? So because I had been asked by a lot of families over the year, but I had been employed by one, we put together Evergreen Property Partners with um, a friend of mine that I've known for over a decade that has significant amount of institutional experience and has had his, only fully, has his own fully integrated company where he was investing on behalf of American Realty Advisors and um, Apollo Global Management. So we combined my family office real estate experience of over 23 years, his institutional experience uh, over 23 years. So we've got about 50 years combined, 15 billion in tr transactions in the US, Canada, across the table. And we really formed Evergreen for a uh, real estate platform for families to invest together. Families love investing with other families, high net worth love investing with other high net worth because they talk about other things. And quite honestly, depending on the wealth, they'll talk about things that we can't relate to just because we don't have hundreds of millions of dollars or whatever. So we really provide the due diligence. We go through everything and we bring families together to invest in the opportunities um, that has been screened, identified, thoroughly due diligence. And um you know, to invest with other families. So right now, it looks to me, at least, like we're in a bear market for sure, technical bear market. Um, we're talking now on June 14th. I think this episode's going to air maybe in, in a week or two. And it also looks to me like our economy is probably entering a recession. Um, what impact does a bear market have on all of these real estate deals? Because, I mean, on the, on the one hand, it seems like in these uh, 
times of trouble, all correlations go to one, right? It seems like these assets kind of rise and fall together. On the other hand, I think that the, you know, the, the thirst for yield is pushing people out of the bond market and we're seeing continued inflows into alts really throughout 2022, at least according to the data that Jimmy and I have reviewed. So is this having any impact on the alts landscape from the, you know, the perspective of a family office? Yeah, well, um, the short answer is yes. You know, on the real estate side, actually, you know, it can thrive through, through periods of time like now. And there's been talks about recession. I just read the other day, stagflation has come up as well. Um, I, I think there's a greater potential for the stagflation for a lot of things that's happened in the past, um, which we can go to, you know, into if you want to, but, um, you know, the- Well, it's, uh, sorry to interrupt, DJ. Do you think we are entering a recession or do you think that that's sort of an overblown fear? Well, you've got a couple of variables. Now, I, I you know, and, and Jimmy, I think, heard this the other day, and I've gone on the record for the last three or four years, and I just did it last year, where, you know, we shouldn't be entering a recession until 26 or 27, 28. And the real, the reason why is because um, you can go back 250 years in the U.S., the U.K., and Australia, and real estate runs in 18 and a half year cycles. So when you look at that, that's where we should be hitting to have an actual recession. Um, and if you take in COVID into effect, you know, it's sort of like we lost a year and a half. Everything was, it was really a weird year. So that's why things got pushed ahead another year, year and a half. Um, it's going to be interesting. I think we're definitely in waters that we haven't been in before because we had a lot of that uh, monies coming from the government, government that were put into the marketplace. Um, you know, we also, they've cut back on student um, student loans, which is, I don't think people realize, but there's a significant amount of money that's going into the economy that typically was being paid toward the student loans, mm -hmm. right? So that's helped as well. We're seeing rising of interest rates for sure. Gas prices are out of control. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I... The, the, the issue that we have, and so my short answer is, I don't really see us going into a recession personally right now. On the real estate side, you have so many fundamentals that are continuing to play out. Um, and so you've got people that are moving to a higher quality of life, cost of living. I mean, we've had a lot of people, we continue to in Denver, people moving here, right? They're moving out of California, out of Chicago, out of New York. If you go down to Florida, I think half the state, its probably, population is probably from New York or, you know, one of those other two states. Yeah, um, yeah. And there's still a huge demand, um, even though cap rates are, are ridiculously low in multifamily, which we can go into later, but you still have that demand of, of um, housing that's needed. And so the fundamentals are remaining. Well, it, yeah, yeah, like in Florida, some of these uh, metro areas have had 30%, 40% rent increases year over year, but they're fully leased up, right? So um it seems like the as you said the fundamentals are supporting it well i had a and i had a conversation with professor glenn miller um the um uh who's a professor at the university of denner i consider him the grandfather of market cycles he's also the um academic director at the family office real estate institute 
And I told him, I said, I'm really nervous about this multifamily. And he started to going into, it was like, well, DJ, you have to understand it's that there's still a lot of support and backing that shows there's that demand there. Mm -hmm. So if you've got people that are moving, especially if we go into a recession and things, you know, prices are going up or whatever the case is, they're going to want to go into even more so a lower cost area, right? And then the jobs are going to go into those areas as well. And so that's going to continue to fuel that demand. So um, I, I think we'll, you know, it's it's not, there won't be a personally a full-blown recession. They talk about it, but, I, you know, I'll still hold my 27, 28 till we hit a recession. We, we might be in that little mini recession, right, Jimmy? I think, I think so. Yeah, I know we've talked about that on the past couple of episodes of this podcast, at least, and maybe we've already entered one, maybe we haven't, I guess only time will tell. I mean, what, um, what's the definition of recession? It's like two quarters. I two consecutive quarters of two negative GDP quarters. growth, I think. I think that's yeah, right. So, I mean, that's real. I mean, that's not that long, right? So you could go into, you technically would go into a recession if it was two quarters, right. just like you said, but is that really going to you know, upset the apple cart. I, I don't think so. I think that when you're looking at later on, so even if we do have a dip, it'll be just that. It'll be a blip on the screen. Whereas in 27, 28, it could be 18 months. It could be, you know, 24 months. And that's a, a your prediction. Recession. And that's your prediction for a next full-blown full-blown recession. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And do you do you think that whether we're in a mini recession now or maybe that one in 27, 28 that you're predicting, does that create an opportunity for ultra high net worths and family offices that that have patient capital with um, regards to real estate investing specifically? 100%. Now, what happened in the first uh, recession? Families were sitting on the sideline um, waiting to see if things were going to start up again, right? So they were waiting, started seeing upturn, and then they started to investing. Whereas when we went into COVID this time, and we did some studies on this, they were literally starting to save up cash to take advantage of discounts, right? Um, which never really happened. And everybody thought it was going to, and it didn't. So where the real wealth is created in real estate is during times of a recession. It's when, so you should start hoarding cash right around 25, 26 at high net worth. I mean, it, I don't care how much money you have, you should start courting cash to get ready at that time because that's when you truly will buy low and have the ability to sell high. Um, and so, you know, that's that's where you need to take advantage of that. If you, if you get in and you're into a, a development at that time, you have to sit on the money. You have to wait it out. But if you can plan for it and be ready, then um, then that's where, like I said, a lot of wealth is created. That's great. Yeah. So make sure you've got some dry powder, all of our viewers and listeners out there <laughs> in about, what would you say, 27, 28? 27, 28. And, and yep. that's why I've been saying it actually for years now mm -hmm. is because I want families and other people to know that you're hearing it that this is going to happen so that when you start getting toward that and you're like, it's coming, it's coming, here we go, let's start stockpiling cash, they're, it's, in, it's in their mind. And they're like, okay, all right, well, that makes sense. And then they can actually start doing that because that's, that's when they're really going to need to invest. 
All right, Andy, we got to set a calendar reminder. Start affording uh, <laughs> cash in 26, 27. Uh, hey, hey, DJ, uh, getting back to um, real estate investing with families, how are families typically doing these real estate investing deals? Um, what, what have you seen be most common? Are they, are they investing directly into de de deals and, and managing themselves or are they doing joint ventures or are they investing through third-party managed real estate funds? Uh, what, what do you see as being the most common and what are some of the pros and cons of each of those methods? Well, first, let me categorize the different five characteristics of um, real estate investing when it comes to families. So you have families that created their wealth in, in real estate, and that could be uh, Trump's a good example. I mean, his family was all real estate, and that's where they created their wealth, right? The next level you have is somebody like a Michael Dell, a Bill Gates, that actually hire institutional type um, uh, employees that have managed quite a bit of money. They bring them in-house and they make all those decisions themselves. They're usually allocating 20 million plus into these deals. The third type of family office real estate investors are those that say, hey, I wanna build my own platform. I'm gonna buy my own properties. And so I'm going to, um, you know, I might hire a person to oversee the properties, right? And to make sure the property management or whatever the case is, and they usually own those direct. Fourth type of family are the ones that invest with operators. The average amount that uh, sponsors, operators um, that they work with is anywhere between four to six because they like to build a relationship, get to know them, and uh, continuing to invest. So if they've been successful, they'll keep investing with those operators, sponsors, et cetera. Um, and so they'll go direct. And then the fifth kind are families that just don't have any infrastructure, any know-how, and they go into to funds. Now, when you look overall where what families like, 70% like to go direct. They like to go directly into um, uh, investing directly with an operator or in the one specific property rather than a fund. Um, that's the easy way to explain that. And then, um, you know, 45% or so like to co-invest with other families. And, you know, the, the funds, families will invest in the funds when one, they don't have the expertise in-house, just like I said, um, or the funds provide an opportunity to do uh, direct investments by being an investor into the fund. So there's sidecar examples to say, you know, write a check for X amount, and we'll also give you direct deal flow. So that happens as well. Um, the number one property type, which has been the same over the last three years and going into the fourth year, if you can guess what that is, it's uh, multifamily. 70% of the families like to invest into multifamilies. And secondly, this year, it's industrial, about 55% like to go into industrial. Uh, last year, uh, office had replaced industrial. And so now, you know, industrial's taken that lead. Uh, there is good appetite on the single family rentals. Um, what you don't see investing, which I think is very interesting, is that you get very little family offices that invest into REITs. It's less than 5%. Now, their foundations, it's more like 20 to 25%. But when it's talking about their own portfolio, it's very small and crowd fundings, uh, you know, under 2%. And there's reasons for that. But, um, you know, families definitely like to go direct and, and um, 
Um, but the Optino portfolio, I was talking to Joe Pagliari, who's uh, the head of real estate at the Chicago University uh, Booth School. He said that the proper allocation of real estate is 15 properties. And the only way you can really get that is if you're going to go into a fund. So there's a lot of benefits to funds, but families like the transparency and they don't like the fees that are involved with funds because there is a double promote. I mean, you, there's fee level funds. Uh, and then you've also got fees down at the property level. Um, and so, um, so that's why they like to go direct majority of the time. Yeah, and if you can go direct, if you have the expertise to go direct, or if you're a, a Bill Gates or a Michael Dell and can afford to hire the institutional type experts to go direct, I, I, that's that's clearly the way to go. But I, I, I would imagine for some families, that's, that's not an option a lot of times. Uh, you touched upon, you actually answered my next question. I was going to ask you about uh, the most popular real estate sectors. You mentioned multifamily being the favored um, asset class within real estate among families. Maybe you could paint a little more about around that. Why, why is that? Why is multifamily so popular? And has it always been popular? Do you anticipate it'll continue to remain a popular sector or might it fall out of favor and maybe get replaced with some other sector down the road? What are your thoughts there? Well, you know, the thing about multifamily, and it, it's my favorite property type personally, um, but one, you have the diversification of a lot of different tenants, right? So you could have 100, 200 different tenants. So if you lose one, it's okay, right? You lose 10, it's okay. You still have a, a low vacancy rate. Um, and so that's one reason why that's, that's uh, preferred a lot. And also it's very easy to understand, right? It's it's um, uh, play, people need a place to stay, and if they're not going to buy a house, then you know you're going to go into an apartment, and um, you know and there's a significant demand, especially when you start going down the food chain into the workforce housing, uh, where there's a huge demand for that, and then the story is, is a big story. I mean, you've got people are waiting later to get married. Um, and you've also have uh, the younger population that don't necessarily want a house. A lot of a lot of people moved out from the city center to the suburbs, um, and then they realized that, geez, I got to take care of the lawn. I got issues with the house I got to take care of, and so they're starting to migrate back into the cities, um, and, and so it's more of a lifestyle, but the you know, we've got more um, people, people talked about the baby boomers all the time where, you know, 10,000 are turning 60 every day. Uh, when you look at the next wave is actually greater than the baby boomers that are coming through. And that's why the demand for housing is going to continue on uh, for the multifamily over the next five, you know, six years, et cetera. Are there any other trends within any other sectors that you have your eye on? Like, Hotels, for instance, obviously took a little bit of a downturn during COVID. Is that rebounding? Maybe the same thing for office. Maybe industrial has some structural trends in its favor due to, you know, uh, retail taking a hit and the rise of e-commerce. Uh, I don't know, just just some fodder there. What, yeah, what, what are so, your thoughts on some other sectors that are experiencing some trends? Yeah, so we're very, very bullish on industrial. Mm -hmm. And there's going to be a, an industrial man, demand over the next five years where, you know, needed additional supply or, or, or what. 
Um, we're very bullish on two specific type of industrial, which is cold storage, where 70% of the cold storage facilities are out of date. The average age is about 47 years old. There's a seven-year demand for that, not only in the U.S., but globally. It's about 200 million square feet that's needed over the next couple of years. There's only like 30 million square feet in the pipeline. So that's a great area. It's more of an expertise area. Um, and then the other is small bay industrial. Small bay industrial is about mm, where uh, self-storage was about 10, 12 years ago. So it was under the radar a little bit. Institutions are starting to realize you've got multiple tenants in a the facility. They're usually infill locations and uh, a lot of mom and pop. So there's a lot of opportunity for roll-ups. So we've been really uh, keen in that area. Um, and you can buy them at great cap rates. You know, when you, which, when you're looking at multifamily, yes, there's a demand, but you're, some people are buying at three and a half, four caps, where we can buy at a seven, eight cap. That's a pretty significant difference, right? And then you're selling at a five, five and a half cap, you know, if you're going to turn it around a little bit. Office, um, you know, if you're contrarian, now is the time to buy. However, we're in a period of time that has never, ever happened before in history because of COVID, right? People started working from home. You've got a lot of people that are, I don't want to go back to the office or the company saying, we'll come in twice a week or whatever the case is. And so that's going to have a significant effect on office. And, and we really don't know where that's going to go. Uh, I've got some good friends that are investing in the office. And if they hit it right, they're going to make a ton of money. Um, if it doesn't come back, then, you know, they're going to be a situation where they're sitting on a lot of buildings. And there's been a lot of conversation about converting some of these offices or even the floor of the offices into multifamily, um, you know, to, to hit some of those demands. You know, retail has actually done, it did, it's done very well. When you look at the stats, retail's done really well. Uh, but you know, the malls are another story. The big boxes are a whole nother issue. Um, but these small strip malls, you know, they've done pretty well, especially because people have stayed within their areas and communities. And so they frequented these and went to them. So, um, you know, hotels we had uh, during the, uh, the COVID, we actually were the largest investor from our investors um, to invest with the Marriott family. And so we were buying and looking to buy distress. And there was some distress, but not to the degree that people thought. And the amount of people that went to the, um, you know, started going to resorts was pretty significant. Um, but it's that's starting to come back around. You still have a lot of people that aren't going back to, uh, you know, work in general, which is a whole nother topic, which I don't know where all these people are working if there's such a demand. Um, but you know, the two biggest opportunities that we see is um, uh, industrial, uh, for sure, like we said. Um, also, mobile home parks, if there's, you know, the affordable housing issue, and that's one of them. And so there's some groups that are using uh, modular homes, 600 square foot homes in these communities, and um, it's filling a demand, and there's actually backlog as well. So we like that space, too. Awesome. Uh, DJ, I know we're running short on time here, but I had one more question from my end that I wanted to ask. And this is top of mind for myself and Jimmy. 
uh, tax mitigation and tax advantage strategies. Uh, obviously, Jimmy is the founder of Opportunity DB and is a real uh, guru on the Opportunity Zones tax incentive. And of course, in our listenership, a lot of interest in DSTs, Delaware Statutory Trusts, and other tax advantage investment structures. You know, and you mentioned that a lot of families, they like to invest directly to avoid fees. I mean, to me, it all comes down to triple net returns. Uh, when you're looking at, you know, stacked fees, when you're looking at inflation running at 8%, um, you have, whether you're an advisor or an investor, you, you have to look at that triple net. So my question for you, are families, are they putting tax advantage strategies? Is that like at the top of the list? Uh, in terms of, or, or is that more something that you look at once you've made your investment selection? It's not to the degree that you would expect. So with the DSTs, which is part of the 1031 exchanges, for the fourth year in a row, 80% of families don't utilize 1031 exchanges. Wow. When we were looking at the um, opportunity zones, I think we're up to maybe high 20s of families that, that go into them, that's it. You know, everybody thought families were going to go into those um, because of the, you know, all the advantages that I'll need to go well, into. Well, DJ, they, they should. I mean, you got to spread the word here. I Listen, I don't, <laughs> I, the reason why they did is initially waiting on the rulings. So they had no idea about the rulings and they were like, what's happening? What's happening? Another reason is they don't understand really how they work. Believe it or not, they don't. So it seems to me, and you guys would know better, that a lot of the high net worth have really been taking advantage of these opportunity zones. I mean, you'll get an occasional family that'll write a $50 million check or a $25 million check, but not to the degree that you'd expect. Um, and so there's another example of a tax benefit that's not taken advantage of. Cost segregation. Uh, I sent out an email a couple of years ago just talking about it, and I had I could not believe how many families called me to say, DJ, can you introduce me to, you know, somebody that can explain this to me and help with it? Um, that's a huge benefit. And then, of course, you get the um, interest rate deductions. You get the um, you get the benefits of the, um, you know, from the amortization and, and from the depreciation and whatnot. So real estate has a tremendous amount of benefits. We ironically, um, over the last five and a half years, uh, I've been working on a structure um, that deals with 1031 exchanges that doesn't exist in the market. Mm -hmm. So what happens is that rather than an average of eight and a half percent return historically in these DSTs, um, you're able to get 12, 15% because we can do uh, value add opportunistic and, and development whereas you can't do those in the uh, DSTs and actually they're quite heavy on expenses too. So, and, and that was all created through um, just seeing, figuring out that there's gotta be an opportunity to really crack that code. Um, but tax wise, I mean, believe me, um, I'm, I think that what you guys are doing on the opportunity zone side, I mean, we do need to discuss a way to really get that information out because it's not, you know, it's not really being discussed. And in fact, we've already listed it as one of our uh, part of our classes um, with the Family Office Real Estate Institute that we hold at the University of Denver um, to talk just two hours about op zones, case studies, the whole deal. Well, 
DJ, I think I have been the victim of misinformation because from everything I read in the New York Times and here in the media, ultra high net worth, they don't pay any taxes at all. And what I'm That's it for our show to today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you like this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. The Alternative Investment Podcast is produced by the Alternative Investment Database, online at altsdb.com. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and access the show notes by visiting altsdb.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode. That's part of our mission here at the Alternative Investment Podcast and at AltsDB is just to spread the word on a lot of these tax advantage investment strategies that, again, I think they really are low-hanging fruit. Isn't that right, Jimmy? That's exactly right, Andy. I mean, that's that was actually why I founded Opportunity DB when I did four years ago, and I was really glad to have DJ on as one of my first guests because I heard about the Opportunity Zones program, and I went to the internet and Googled Opportunity Zones, and there was hardly any information. So that's why that's why I founded it was I thought there was an opportunity to, you know, get some more education out there and help spread the word. And, and I hope we're doing that the right way at Opportunity DB and here at AltsDB as well. Uh, just, uh, DJ, just to wrap up really quickly, you touched upon the Van Curen Institute for Family Office Real Estate. I was wondering if you could spend the last couple minutes of our interview today telling folks about uh, what the mission of that institute is and, and, and the, the work that you're doing there. So when you look at families, um, 90% or 70% of families lose their wealth by the second gen, 90% by the third generation. And, and that's, I mean, that's a significant amount of money, right? And so a lot of that around that has to do with education. So in my first year, after I talked to that person about, you know, said hedge funds 101, I started um, with a website you know, just to educate people. Then I wrote a book on family office real estate investing Then started doing some podcasts, speaking at events, videos, um, uh, ended up uh, starting the family office real estate magazine, which is a quarterly issue. And, um, and that ended up ultimately growing to where the University of Denver had initially asked to start the family office real estate institute. And, you know, we had, we'd spun out, we're now, it's, we're doing it ourselves. Um, we've got Institutional Real Estate Inc. handling all the back uh, operational, and, and they've been around for 30, 40 years. They've got uh, publications in three continents, as conferences, et cetera, but it's all focused around executive education. And so um, we do have some virtual classes, but we had our first one on campus at the University of Denver, and we have uh, professors from Harvard, from Wharton, from uh, uh University of Chicago Business School from University of Denver. Um, and we've also have industry experts that deal and work with hundreds of families and, and uh, high net worth and, and stuff like that. So it's an executive education program that we have. And then we're supporting it with uh, case studies. We got approved for the uh, Journal of Family Office Real Estate, which will be an academic journal in universities around the world. Uh, we're going to create the Family Office Real Estate Index, the four index, to monitor how families are investing in within cities and other families can look at that. Um, and then, of course, we'll have educational uh, information, which, Jimmy, I told you that we'll have to get you on a, 
on a podcast to interview you, have you write an article or, or whatnot, and maybe even have you teach a class because it's important to get this information out. That's at for fore.institute, not.com, but .institute, where you can find more information. And, you know, my the mission is to really, to me, real estate is the best investment in the world. You have tax benefits that we talked about. You've got a hard asset and you can see it. It's physical, right? And historically, it's got great returns. So as part of that mission to get that word out and help families not have to lose that and, and maintain wealth, not only maintain, but also create wealth through real estate is how the Institute really came about to help with that so that more people can understand opportunity zones and take advantage of them or 1031 exchanges or portfolio diversification, the whole thing. So that's what we're doing. And, and um, you know, our board, just to finish up, uh, families that are represented on there include Panda Express, Best Buy, um, Paul Tudor Jones, Johnson & Johnson. Um, we got a major beer family. Um, we've got uh, Chicago Cubs, you know. So we've got quite a number of families there to help with the direction and the um, content for what we're doing. And then we'll have our first family office real estate conference in March of next year. Well, that's great. I love what you're doing there. And uh, sure, I'd love to help any way I can come on the podcast and and teach a course at, at the Institute. <laughs> Just let me know when and where, and uh, I'll try to make it work for you, DJ. I, I'd love yeah. to help any way I can. Uh, but DJ, before we go, where can our listeners and viewers go to learn more about you and Evergreen Property Partners? And uh, maybe you can give that Institute URL one more time. Yeah, so if you're looking at, at Evergreen, um, which is that consortium platform, it's at evergreenpropertypartners.com. Um, for the Institute, it's for, which stands for family office real estate.institute, so not .com, but for.institute. And then more information about me, you can go to djvancuren.com and and uh, find information for me and anything I can ever do to be of help or provide information or, or whatnot and happy to help uh, in any way. Terrific. And for our viewers and listeners, if you want links to all of the resources we discussed on today's episode, you can access the show notes at altdb.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the show on YouTube and on your favorite podcast platform. So you'll be sure to receive new episodes as we release them. DJ, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks, guys.